Well, you want to study history to, for a lot of reasons. One, for the sake of sake of doing it. But I think if you if you look at this period, you see striking striking parallels. On this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with David Beto, professor, historian, and author, to discuss his upcoming expose, The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, the untold story of FDR's concentration camps, censorship, and mass surveillance. Although FDR is still considered one of the most beloved presidents in American history, David's research exposes his dark side, which differed greatly from his public persona. We explored the dark underbelly of the New Deal and how it relates to what America has become today. Before we get into all of these things, the concentration camps, the mass surveillance, uh, the free speech impingements and things like that, Let's get a broad picture of the New Deal. What what was it for? What was it created for? Um, and then we can talk about the public face of the New Deal, so what it was supposed to be compared to what it actually was. Okay. Well, um, Roosevelt, when he ran in 1932, I think he does use the expression the New Deal, but it wasn't at all clear from his campaign. Because if you look at Roosevelt's speeches, he attacks Hoover as a spendthrift, as uh, he is. I have one speech that I've got an audio of that's amazing that I'd never heard before, where he sounds just like Ronald Reagan. He says, I support the Democratic platform. We need to cut spending 25 percent. And uh, it's an amazing speech, but he made speeches like that. Having said that, Roosevelt was very uh, smart politician, and he played. Uh, he gave hope to people that maybe he was going to do, you know, on the left as well, um, and said, you know, we have to do something about unemployment. The federal government has a responsibility. But he was very vague, but certainly he had a lot of support from conservatives, um, from people across the political spectrum, because he he was all things to all people during that campaign. So mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about how FDR saved capitalism or prevented some sort of communist revolution or something like that. But in 1932, he was he ran as a conventional politician. He didn't run as some sort of revolutionary figure. Hmm. Well, when he's president, he has big majorities and uh, wide support. And this is an era where you have the rise of dictatorships, uh, uh, Mussolini and Hitler, and again, I'm not saying he was in that category, but the uh, Soviet Union, you have this fascination with planning, this uh, what hybris, uh, Hayek called this hubris of planning and of sen- uh, that the government can, can handle everything. And so Roosevelt went in that direction, and that was probably his inclination because Roosevelt is a cousin of Franklin D, or of Theodore Roosevelt. He married uh, Theodore's niece, um, and uh, he looked up to Teddy Roosevelt, who he referred to as Uncle Ted, even though he was a distant cousin. He also looked up to Woodrow Wilson, who he worked for as Secretary of the Navy. So he's very much in this progressive tradition. That's his inclination. So I think the real FDR is more coming out with the New Deal, which is a, a massive attempt, certainly compared to the past and maybe in some ways the future of economic central direction. 
you have the National Recovery Administration, which puts puts in wage, uh, kind of a, 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 a wage and price controls. Uh, you have the uh, Agricultural Adjustment Administration (AAA), which uh, sometimes quite ruthlessly is trying to prevent farmers from growing, uh, so you can eliminate what they call crop surpluses and bring up agricultural prices. Um, and that's the first New Deal. Those are really the linchpins of it. You're getting the WPA coming in, Works Progress Administration, Federal Relief. And then later, in 1935, Roosevelt brings in what is called the Second New Deal, which is ratcheting it up. Social Security comes in. Um, during that, the uh, Wagner Act, which is really, in some ways, part of the uh, similar to the old NRA, which had been struck down by the Supreme Court. So we have a, a situation here where Roosevelt is is trying to use central direction to bring up wages, to bring up prices, um, and. Uh, creating these vast bureaucratic agencies to do it, such as the AAA and the National Industrial Recovery, National Recovery Administration. So, David, you spoke there about something interesting, uh, which is the tendency at that time to move towards central direction or central planning. You talk about what was going on in Europe. But in your book, uh, in your introduction of your book, you talk as well about some of the influences of FDR when he was going to university, for example. So there was um, a lot of German academic thought that started to come into American universities and replace this idea of the classical liberal tradition. Right. So so can you talk a little bit about what kind of led up to this whole shift in thinking uh, in Europe and in America that that led people mm -hmm. to think that somehow this was the new way of doing things? Yeah, this is an intellectual revolution that starts in a fairly modest way in the late 19th century. And you have a marrying of two traditions. One is ger the German tradition. And what you had in that case is Bismarck, who was a conservative, a kind of a NAPCOM, <laughs> I guess mm. you'd say, in a way, um, wants to undermine the Socialist Party, which is on the rise. So he pushes a kind of, uh, I wouldn't call it democratic socialism, a kind of third way uh, 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 big government agenda. And a lot of the professors at the German universities who are kind of allied with this, are called the Socialists of the Chair. That's their nickname. But they're defenders of this conservative regime, which is pushing through government health insurance, pushing through zoning, all of these things that did not exist anywhere. And he, partly the goal is to try to kind of, Bismarck's goal is try to buy off uh the left, right, to undermine the left. And uh, uh, a lot of Americans are going to Germany to study, including uh, some very famous uh, progressive figures um, who go there, come back, become uh, professors at places like University of Wisconsin, where I went to school, or Johns Hopkins University, and start making putting forward this agenda. And basically the agenda they got from Bismarck is there's a third way. 
we can avoid the anarchy, and that's the term they used, of laissez-faire. This is mm. not, this is no, there's no planning here. Uh, this is uh, directionless. Uh, we need direction. But they also said, we don't want communism either. So their view is, we'll get this third way, this golden mean between these extremes using big government. Now, in the U.S., you start to get a movement called the social gospel. And this is very big in the Protestant churches. And their idea is they want to bring in a kingdom of God on earth. I mean, they sound in some sense like these millennialists you hear on uh, radio, uh, but they aren't really because their view is very religious, but their view is we can shape up planet Earth before Christ comes. We can create a perfect society, a kingdom of God on Earth. They're, they're called post-millennialists. That's what the, they would be. And they are very big in the churches, but also become very big among intellectuals. So you have certain people like Richard Ely, who is a social gospel guy, big in this tradition, who also studied in Germany. Richard Ely was Roosevelt's, uh, one of his favorite professors. Um, so these traditions sort of come together and intellectually very much on the rise. Now, this is 1880s. Roosevelt is born in the 1880s, but they're on the rise in the 1890s after the turn of the century. They're certainly going very strong when Roosevelt is, is uh, uh, you know, uh, attending uh, Harvard University. Um, these ideas are all are out there in a big way, and he's influenced by them. And certainly his two role models are Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, and they are very much influenced by this, this idea of let's steer a middle ground between laissez-faire and um, communism, right? Yeah, okay, that's, that's very interesting because I think that anybody who's trying to create this kind of heaven on earth or some kind of utopia, they usually end up becoming utilitarians, right? They say like, whatever the ends are, the means don't really matter. I think there's, you know, some relationship there with the way that FDR thinks. And you wrote in your book, throughout his life, he repeatedly operated under the assumption that the desired end was far more important than the means used to achieve it. So can you give some insight on, on how that manifested in FDR? Oh, well, they, they, you could see that very early on in his mentality. The big scandal that almost sunk um, um, uh, FTR was the Newport scandal, uh, which maybe some of his progressive supporters would be very uncomfortable being reminded of. But basically, mm -hmm. it was this, this attempt to ferret out uh, gays in the Navy. And Roosevelt was kind of the main guy running that, assistant secretary of the Navy. And they do all these sort of dragnet techniques, uh, very dubious uh, methods, legal methods. And Roosevelt basically was frustrated by critics. And he had many, many critics who said, you know, you're smearing people. You're, you're, this is, uh, this is, uh, uh, this is kind of uh, you're using surveillance. You're you're not respecting individual rights. And Roosevelt basically makes the argument in so many words. Well, the important thing is we got a problem here, and we got to do something about it. Let's not worry so much about this. Um, um, you know these these procedures. 
and uh, and he, he almost is totally discredited as a result of this. He's attacked by the New York Times, um, and he makes a comeback from this. But he's in a very low ebb in the early 1920s because of the scandal, which the Senate does a report on it, and they blame FDR. And they, and they primarily are criticizing his methods, which are uh, the means don't matter, the end matters. You see that later being commented upon by his own attorney generals, uh, who are New Dealers, uh, Francis Biddle and um, uh, Robert Jackson, both say this about FDR, that he really didn't care much about uh, constitutional procedures or niceties, legal niceties, right, legal procedure. The important thing was he identified a problem and wanted to solve it. And he so, wouldn't, he'd, he'd use any means that he could to solve that problem. So it sounds there like from that incident, which was basically a bunch of men who were accused of being gay uh, were put in jail for a year or so. That's what happened in that case because yes, they were kind of yes. snitched on. Yeah, they, right. Exactly. There and and um, it was just uh, uh, yeah. You summarized it well. Okay, so it sounds like there, what's happening with FDR, another kind of utilitarian uh, way of way of doing things, is I'm going to subject you to my morality, right? So yeah, and this is his morality because FDR. He doesn't. He doesn't want gays in. I mean, most people don't at the time, right? So he's not that different, right? Uh, he wants to ferret them out. And a lot of people might have agreed with him at the time because that was the attitude. However, his methods were so over the top that even people that might have agreed with that final goal are saying, you can't do this to people. People have individual rights. Right. And you're violating all sorts of legal procedures through these, you know, through this espionage, through locking up people without charges for long periods of time this kind of thing. So what happens there is FDR is criticized for doing this thing. And then he kind of recovers, he comes back and he ends up running for president. Uh, he implements the new deal in 1933. And um, you write about, as I said, the dark underbelly of the new deal. So a bunch of different things that happen there. There's the new deal mass surveillance. Uh, there's uh, censorship, there's impingements on free speech. Uh, and then there's the untold story, which is the subtitle of your book, of FDR's concentration camps. So all of these things are going on during the New Deal. So choose one of them, maybe, David, and explain to us kind of what happened there. Well, why don't I pick one that most people know about? But uh, And that is the concentration camps. And that is uh, Japanese internment. Now, I got pushback, including from some people at the Independent Institute. And they were just sort of like concentration camps, David. That seems a little, maybe a little over the top. And this is one case, I think, where, I don't know, recent trends towards calling them concentration camps, I think really, I think I'm comfortable with that. And why am I comfortable with that? Well, one reason is FDR called them concentration camps. That was his terminology. And in a 1944 press conference, he was asked about them and he called them concentration camps. So, wow. okay. He calls them that uh, repeatedly. 
and they had all the trappings of con- many of the trappings of concentration camps, such as guard towers, uh, uh, fences. You could you you could be shot, and people were shot for trying to escape um, from these camps. So I think it's a fair label. Now, am I saying these were analogous to the death camps in, that we see in Europe for the Jews, for example? No. They are not analogous to that. That's not the same thing. But the term concentration camps had been around a long time um, before that. Um, it, you know, it fits it fits the definition. Now, it fits the definition in other interesting ways, too. Now, a lot of people say, well, Japanese American or, or German Americans and Italian Americans, people born in Germany and in, in Italy, uh, non-citizens usually, were interned. A lot of them were interned. That's true. But you don't have a situation where you intern everybody just because of ancestry. And most of these people were American citizens. And they were interned or incarcerated. I kind of like that word more to describe it, frankly. Maybe you need to work on saying that instead because I think it fits. Um, simply because they were of Japanese ancestry. And there are even stories about you had orphans. And, uh, and they said, uh, you know, there was, there was a, the guy that was uh, one of the people involved in putting together the camp said, well, we're going to put Japanese orphans. And he said, no, you got to put them in the camps because that's what they are. They're, that's how extreme this was. So I think for several reasons, I think we need to feel comfortable using that label. Now, let's look at FDR. FDR and internment. Nobody defends, well, very few, some people do defend it, but very few people defend it, and certainly people who write history textbooks, you know, all condemn it, right? And they all see it as as an atrocity. There's more written about Japanese internment than just about any other kind of violation of civil liberties in American history, including the Trail of Tears. It's their book, there's book after book about it. And it deserves that kind of emphasis. Um, but if you look at the standard textbooks, how do they treat FDR? Sometimes he's not even mentioned. It'll say the president signed an executive mm. order. Mm-hmm. They don't give any background. The person they usually quote is General DeWitt, who was in the army and DeWitt was the guy that was, um, you know, carrying it out, right? He is quoted very often with these racist comments. However, the, the general impression is given is that all this hysteria has come about uh, out of Pearl Harbor. Um, all this pressure, all these people are anti-Japanese. So FDR kind of went along with them. That's, that's too bad. He shouldn't have done that. Bad boy, you shouldn't have done it. All right, maybe may a little stronger than that. They'll say, okay, he shouldn't have done it. But the context they described is is, a, is, is a FDR is kind of clueless. He's kind of a creature of events. He's kind of pressured into something here that maybe he wouldn't want to do, and other people are pushing it. The initiative doesn't come from him. That's the sort of impression that you get conveyed, intentionally or unintentionally. And um, it's there if you look at the textbooks. When the truth is, FDR had supported the idea of putting 
Japanese Americans uh, in Hawaii, certainly in concentration camps, uh, all the way back to 1935. He 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 came out for it. He had made racist comments. Uh, he made them in the 1920s when he said we you know basically was very sympathetic to the view we have to stop Japanese immigration. We have to stop Japanese Americans from intermarriage because that'll produce offsprings that are inferior. Makes very racist comments. And these are for Georgia, uh, as an op-ed editor for a Georgia uh, Warm Springs newspaper, which was, by the way, segregated. Warm Springs were the famous, you know, thing that FDR, foundation that FDR supported was segregated uh, in Georgia. Uh, so he's pushing this idea of internment. And General DeWitt is often the fall guy, and I'm not defending General DeWitt. I mean, he went along with this. He ended up embracing it. But General DeWitt was actually initially his response to proposals for internment. We can't do that. They're American citizens. We can't intern them. And he later came on board because he was a, kind of a racist himself and he, he, he was a bureaucrat in uniform, as they say, and he mm-hmm. went along with it, mm-hmm. and he ended up adopting it. But FDR was always friendly to the idea. Um, there's no reason to believe that he ever resisted the idea. Give you another thing that a lot of people don't know. Japanese Americans, who are about a third of the population, I think, in Hawaii, were never interned. All right? FDR wanted to intern them. And if you look at his executive order, it was very vague. He wanted to intern them, and he wanted to, to put them on one of the islands in Hawaii and, uh, you know, transport them there. And he pushed it really hard. And the guy who stopped it was, one of the people was the local military commander, who didn't come out against it, but he wasn't for it. And he dragged his feet, he came up with all these objections, and he had to, FDR to back off, because it would have, you know, you're fighting the Japanese. This is one where, you know, Midway and all of this going on. And you're going to divert American ships to transport Japanese Americans from one part of Hawaii to another part and put them in camps. And it was just bureaucratically too difficult. That's why I backed off. So FDR was taking the initiative here. He was always supportive of the idea. Moreover, he kept the Japanese Americans in camps despite Many calls from people in the federal government, cabinet officials, saying we can let them go now. He kept them there through the 1944 election. And by the way, there was a lot of opposition at the beginning. People like J. Edgar Hoover, FDR's own attorney general was against it. Um, A lot of people were against it. And uh, if he had used his charisma, people would have supported him. I mean, he said, "Law, I'm not going to put them there. It's the four freedoms. This is what we're fighting. We could use them in this example, as a propaganda example, very effectively. He, he didn't have to do this. There wasn't this kind of incredible pressure on him to do it. And he did. So, he waited two months after Pearl Harbor to do it. So it wasn't in the heat of the moment that this occurred. Right, so right. I, would, I think we need to focus a lot more on that because I think it gives... It's a big piece of the puzzle of his civil liberties record. I say it's an outsized piece, but it's part of a puzzle. And you have other pieces on the puzzle. And we need to bring them all together and just realize that 
he's not some clueless prisoner of events. He's ready to do this. He's, he's eager to do it. There's no second thought about it. And he keeps them there. So this is a very, very important indictment of his presidency. Right. Well, that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of apologists. People like to look at FDR now as being one of the best presidents of all time. You know, he brought America out of the Great Depression. He did all these wonderful things. Then, of course, the Second World War. Uh, and, and for whatever reason it is, FDR has to be kind of put up on this shrine and idolized even nowadays. So that's just kind of like a stain on his reputation. But you're saying here that this is kind of uh, part of a bigger picture of who FDR was and the types of things that he was doing behind the scene. So let's talk a little bit about other things well, that happened. Can I happened. say something real quickly about yes, that? Yes, go ahead. Sure, well, sure. Well, you know, interestingly enough, I, when I first did this book manuscript, I didn't have a ch chapter on Japanese internment because my theory was, that's been so written about, everybody knows about that. And I'm just going to say, hey, there are these other things going on over here. And David Thoreau, the late David Thoreau, the Independent Institute, said, no, you got to have a chapter on Japanese internment. He said, I've been working on this book over 10 years, and that's true. I'm sick of it. Let me get it done, David. No, you got to have a chapter <laughs> on Japanese internment. I had to do all this original research on it, um, and I'm so glad he pushed me because I saw the interconnections. Uh, I saw the people on both sides when it came to other civil liberties abuses were really tended to line up on the same side and those abuses. And I found that this is very much interconnected even, and, and there's some new things that can be said about it maybe. And I think I, I, I was able to do that. The use of language, for example, you look at the executive order, FDR's executive order. I used to assign that to students. And I had to stop. Why you read the thing. Well, what the hell is he talking about? He says uh, other persons, persons deemed, you know, uh, he doesn't even say who these people are that are going to be uh, basically excluded from these areas. What they did, what he did is says, you will no longer be able to live in these areas where you live. And then later they came up, by the way, we got these camps we're going to send you to. But they so don't it didn't say Japanese? Japanese in wow. his executive order. Huh. Those came later in the enforcement orders by General DeWitt and others. And that's probably why he's something of the fall guy for this. But that was the intention. So I always compare it a little bit to the way slavery is treated in the Constitution. The word is never mentioned, but it is widely understood that by other persons, they mean slaves. But they don't want to use that term. They could have used it. And if you looked at the... Um, uh, local laws, the slave codes, they used it freely there. So it's, mm -hmm. it's an interesting comparison about how you're using a euphemism. Uh, and uh, if you actually read that executive order, and I urge people to do it, you would have no idea he's talking about Japanese Americans. Absolutely no idea. Um, so well, that's, anyway, that's, I'm sorry you were no, going to ask No, question. that's fine. I mean, yeah. but that's that's typical though, David, right? When When people do terrible things. They tend to use euphemisms, like mercy I, killings, mercy deaths, things like that. I mean... Uh, <laughs> it shows guilt, though. It shows some guilt and some recognition. But you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So what happened then in terms of the New Deal mass surveillance? Let's go into that a little bit. What did right, that look sure. like? Yeah. Well, this is... Um, 
there was a Senate committee, and it was chaired by uh, our law school, has, has a whole bunch of things named after him here, as he went here. Hugo Black was a U.S. senator before he was a Supreme Court justice. Black was very much a populist, uh, very much, oh, these rich people got in this, into this depression and they need to be punished. And he, he, he was in that tradition very much. Uh, but also, po- uh, black, you know, bought into the kind of, uh, racism that you see as well in the South. In fact, when there was an attempt to pass a bill against lynching, he, on the Senate floor, he was the leader of the effort to stop the lynching bill, the bill to punish lynching. Wow. Anyway, so there is background. He's a very powerful senator. He's a zealous New Dealer. And he's seen as a, FDR sees black as, he's the guy that, that'll shove things through. He's my point man. He'll do anything. So they were very close allies. So he, FDR is getting frustrated. By 1935, his, his uh, poll uh, poll, you know, rankings are lowering, right? Uh, approval ratings are, are lower. Um, there are even some people who predict, I think quite plausibly, that he was in real political trouble in early 1936. Might have, you know, that the election had been held at that point, he might well have lost. And there's that's a separate discussion. But anyway, he's very worried about this. So he wants to undermine these anti-New Deal groups that are out there. Um, and so he goes to Black and, and says, I, you know, these people are lobbying, right? They're lobbying against the New Deal. And I want you to to lead an investigation. And Black says, sure, you know, he's, he's all for this, right? And so he brings a lot of these people in, these anti-New Deal types, and, uh, you know, it's gaining a little bit of publicity. But then he, he discovers something. Somebody clues him into this. That the FCC has a rule that all telegrams have to copy, the companies have to keep copies of the originals of the telegrams. Uh, millions of them, right? They have to keep these for a certain period of time. And so they come up with this idea, Black does, and he goes to the FCC, and of course they cooperate, right? Uh, IRS also cooperates with them. Federal government's very much helping him in this investigation. Goes to the FCC, said, we want to search these telegrams. And the, and the people, and he goes to Western Union Company. That's, and he goes to the other ones too, but that's the main telegram company. And this is, a, this is the email of its time. Closest, closest thing to it. Uh, um, I think about 50% of long distance communication is through telegrams, not through phone calls. So it's very big. It's instantaneous, relatively instantaneous, right? You can send a message, a telegram to somebody. So it's very comparable in a way. And of course, people are going to be like they're in emails. They're going to, they're going to let their guard down. They're going to say things, right? So Black knows that. And so he, he, so Western Union says, no, we're not going along with this. This violates our, uh, uh, you know, um, privacy, uh, you know, and customers aren't going to want to come back. And they resist, but they end up being kind of strong-armed into it. And so they begin searching these telegrams. 
black staffers go in there and they look through each one. And what they do is they, they target. They look at telegrams in and out of leading new deal, anti-New Dealers and have every single member of con- uh, Congress. Um, and they, they go through these. And, um, and Black tells them, basically, or the head of the committee tells them, I said, look, we're looking for evidence of lobbying. So if you see something private or whatever, as you're going through these, hand by hand, well, you know, don't, don't pay attention to that stuff, right? Just <laughs> look at anything having to do with lobbying. Well, what's that? Anything political, basically, is lobbying, right? That's right. the way you defined it. Anything that can directly or indirectly influence legislation. Any criticisms of the New Deal? Any yeah, anyone who was yeah. against the New Deal basically were were targeted here. And as you said, their private communications are there. They're like, oh, just don't look at it. If you see a message between a husband and a wife, a telegram, just just close your eyes and or you know, flip the page, kind of thing. So, but basically, to paint a picture for our audience here, what we're seeing is that the private messages of all of these citizens have no idea that they're being read by Black in this committee. Yeah, and um, how many are they doing? Now, I, I couldn't believe this when I saw this. I think the figure was 3 million. Might have been wow. 2 million, but I believe it was 3 million. Hmm. And I did the math on this. And they're they're going at rapid speed. They have a committee staffers. They have the FCC helping them, and they're just going through these. And they're doing it all day. And they're doing it for weeks. And so, yeah, that's that's plausible. And um, um, and eventually, Western Union gets very uncomfortable, especially when they start widening the numbers of people that they're 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 asking to to uh, look at their telegrams. And so at that point, Western Union starts informing people. Right? People don't know this is happening, and they start actually telling people. By the way, the Senate committee. In cooperation with the FCC, we didn't want to do this, but they told us is is um, looking at your private telegrams. So and put one a disclaimer. Guy who finds out about this is kind of a moderate uh, Democrat named uh, Newton Baker, who was Wilson's Secretary of War. Probably would have known FDR at the time. Um, I guess he would have sort of been FDR's boss. That's an interesting point. I never thought of that. Is because uh, he had Secretary of the Navy, and then you had. You know, this guy, Secretary of War Newton Baker. And Baker is so mad about this. He was not at all like a strong anti-New Dealer that he said, uh, I wouldn't lead a lynching party to lynch Senator Black. But if I saw one, someone putting a rope over his neck, I wouldn't really trouble myself about that. I wouldn't do anything about that. Really, really mad. And another guy that's very mad is named Silas Strawn. Strawn is a head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. He was head of uh, the Bar Association. I mean, this guy, he's head of the U.S. Golf Association. This guy's a celebrity in a way, right? And he finds out that his law firm, which is the largest in Chicago, that they target in his law firm, in and out telegrams. And that's in Chicago, right? And so he brings suit. And he actually gets a, a, a judge eventually to say what, what, what they're doing is illegal. What Black is doing is illegal. But Senate committees have wide discretion 
Um, they've already done it. We can't do anything about what they've already done. And of course, they'd finished their work by and large. They did, they did most of their damage. And so Black says, he is really mad. But he eventually says, well, you know, we've ended our field investigation. So it doesn't <laughs> go any further up. Um, although he loses in the courts. Very strong language in the courts about what he's doing. And that's rare. Because at the time, the theory is, because there have been all these scandals in the 20s and investigations, was that Senate committees should have wide discretion. So by a court slapping down, and Black knew this and probably made him more confident that he could get away with anything, that was a big deal to slap him down in the courts. Uh, but he goes on, and he's so loyal to FDR, he was such an attack dog, that when a position opens up on the Supreme Court, he is asked to be on it. That's the reason. And FDR had reason to know about his Klan background. Oh, yeah, I didn't mention that. Black had been a member of the Klan, had gotten support of the Klan. This was known to FDR. It was known to a lot of people. It was kind of a whispered about. But when it broke as a mainstream story, Black was already on the court. It was a big scandal. There were calls for him to resign but he kind of gave this speech that prevaricated a lot and, and was able to stay on the court. And FDR so you was, you know, it was like some of the best people, my best supporters are in the Klan. What is everyone so upset about? Yeah. Right, right, right. He, so he the- said things like that in private. He wouldn't say things like that in public. That's where FDR is much smarter than someone like Trump. He does yes. not say things in public. That get That's in- one of the things right. I... Yeah, that's yeah. one of the things that I noticed came out of your book and reading the first few chapters is that FDR was often doing things very covertly. Like he was a great rhetorician. He knew how to rally the people behind him. He knew how to say the right things. And his actions were often the opposite of what he was saying. Yeah, exactly. And um, he would sometimes uh, let down his hair in uh, private um, he would, uh, you know, people that he trusted, um, or maybe after he had a few drinks, I don't know, he would open up and he would say things that would have gotten him in, in trouble. Like, for example, I, m- I mentioned this in the book, there are FDR tapes, not many of them, but they actually, he was taping private conversations. Well, what he was doing originally was he was taping his news conferences. And to his credit, he had a lot of them. And But they weren't taped. They were very informal, but he was always worried he was getting misquoted. So he taped them, but sort of left the tape machine on and taped mm. a lot of other things. The hot mic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, some of these exist. And in 1940, there was a whispering campaign. It was well known among the press and insiders, but they didn't, they didn't dredge up this stuff as much back then, that uh, the Republican candidate, Will, Wendell Wilkie, was having an affair with actually kind of a prominent newspaper woman who was, interestingly enough, Isabel Patterson's boss at the New York Herald Tribune. Isabel Patterson, of course, a prominent libertarian figure, um, totally unconnected. But they, uh, they are having this affair. And Sir Ween whispered about it, and FDR was talking with one of his advisors, said, you know, we got to use this against him, but we don't want to do it directly. That would look bad. So let's just communicate with people down the line to get it out. 
just just tell them to to to, to get it out. Don't say don't say it's from us. Make sure there's buffers, basically, between us and them. But let's get this out. That's the way, that, that is capturing a rare time that you can actually hear him on tape um, saying things. With the mask that, off. That, that would have gotten him in trouble had he said them in public in a very big way. Right, right, right. So that's when you see like his mask come down and you see who he really is. These are the kinds of ways he was operating like very covertly. I think that's important too in understanding the big picture of the New Deal because I see it, you know, from the outside looking backwards in time uh, from what I know about it as this kind of covert operation to change the architecture of America in a way that was, you know, signed by executive orders um, and creating a whole bunch of bureaucratic committees. And then it changed the shape of America. And I think that that has lasting effects to this day, but it was all done very covertly. Would you agree? I'd agree and disagree. I think certainly a lot of these methods and the examples you give are good ones. Um, having said that, FDR is a becomes, unlike in 1932, a very zealous defender of big government and a very zealous critic of of uh, of uh, markets at least of free markets right um and he is constantly saying look he the people he blames 1932 he was blaming a lot of people including the spendthrifts in the Hoover administration but during as you get into the 30s, and I've listened, to, I've subjected myself to listen to a lot of speeches, which are all at the Hyde Park um, Roosevelt Library. They're all online, all of his speeches, every one of them, public utterances, including that tape I mentioned is online. And it, he is a very zealous and a very effective spokesman for the position that the people that led brought us this the depression are these big corporations, the the not just big corporations, but the market, right? The big unplanned business. market. Look how they failed us. Hmm. We're coming in to save you. And so in that sense, it wasn't covert. He is one of the best spokesmen out there for that view. And he is harping on it constantly in his speeches. And those that say that FDR was just try something and see if it works, yes, he's a politician. Yes, he's pragmatic. Yes, he will back off if things are not working out. But he is pushing a big government agenda, and he believes it, I believe, quite strongly. And he'll push it as much as he can. Um, he sincerely believes it. So I think that's the default position. I don't think he's just some... Um, vote hungry politician but that's part of him too that's what makes right. him complicated yeah right okay so basically he's he's doing things that are going to be you know politically favorable you know he he is testing the waters in some sense but in the other in the other sense he has that kind of mission at the end of the day that he wants to achieve so he has those kind of two parts if it gets unpopular enough then he'll kind of maybe change course, but he has this idea in mind, which comes back to the kind of utopia, I guess, that you were describing at the beginning of this big government. Yeah. Utopia. I mean, this is, this is his utopia and he believes in, he goes and he gives speeches at the local, you know, in Hyde park 
He said, you know, years ago, you didn't have, uh, you know, people, you didn't have a welfare system here, right? And he'd tell a story. You know, there was an old woman down the block, and this is how she was treated. And you didn't have schools that were very big, and you didn't have high school. And this is all the bad things that happened. So he'd give an example. And I've heard a story about a woman, you know, and he was from Hyde Park. So he would connect with the audience in that way. Right. But like I said, like you said, he would he would back off. Um, he would back off if he had to. Um, and in World War Two, that is sort of misstated in a way because it is said that he gave up on the New Deal. He, he, in fact, FDR said, "We have to." I'm Doctor. Win the war now, and Doctor New Deal. I'm not that anymore right now, or I'm not going to emphasize that. He wouldn't say he wouldn't totally do it. But we see in the Japanese internment that there are interesting connections between the New Deal and the internment. So the New Deal welfare state, yeah, he's downplaying that, but that is among the tools that are used um, at other times to, um, you know, to control people to limit their speech and that kind of thing. Right, right, right. Okay, and I think that that's actually a really important point to emphasize, to control people. Because in reading your book, that's kind of what springs out to me as a reader, is seeing that there was really this desire uh, for FDR and for that administration and everybody who he was surrounded by to control people, to control their speech, to control their behavior, uh, to rally them behind the idea of what was mm -hmm. good for the country, supposedly, the greater good of the country, uh, rather than their individual rights and, and their individual uh, well-being, I guess you could say. So how else did that manifest? Uh, well, partly, um, I, I mean, I think I would add to that, too, that FDR sees political opponents. That's another thing that comes through the speeches. And I guess I guess all politicians do that, but he does it better, more effectively, where his political opponents are these kinds of old, they're these big business people who don't recognize it, that really they failed. And he actually has helped them. He sort of says mm -hmm. that, I, you know, I helped them, you know, but, but he also caricatures them is they're all just these profit centered people. And, and that's who's leading his, his opposition to them. But you were asking about how the New Deal is manifested, and the, the yeah, that's a very good question. Well, we can go, we can we can look at Japanese internment. The one of the more famous New Deal or uh, agencies is the Works Progress Administration. They get a lot of good press even now because of they did a lot of things that you know some some great things, right? Dam building, uh, improvements in communities, that kind of thing that we all see. But uh, the WPA was also very much part of Japanese internment. They were important in helping to transport people to the camps. They ran a lot of the early camps. Um, they, uh, um, they played a very big role. In fact, the head of the WPA, or one of the top people, wanted the WPA, I guess it was the head, to actually permanently run the camps. But 
that had to be jettisoned because it was a very unpopular agency by this time. It was seen as boondoggling, you know, the old story of, okay, move those rocks from this side of the road to that side and this side to that side. You know, that kind of stereotype, not entirely untrue, hmm. but that was the, a lot of conservatives and a lot of Democrats are like, this is, so FDR ends up in, I think, with the end of 42, shutting down the WPA. And he praises them for a job well done for their role in unemployment, ending unemployment and all this, but he doesn't mention Japanese internment. But by that time, that was the single biggest part of the WPA budget. In fact, the WPA spent more than the military on internment, more than any other government agency. So if you want to talk about WPA projects, that was one of the biggest WPA projects of all time. That's a very good example. Um, I mentioned that uh, to you that there was this case of a black Republican in Memphis who was organizing for Wilkie in 1940. And in retaliation for that, the city boss, who was a big ally of Roosevelt, Crump, told this guy, you, you shut down the Republican headquarters in Memphis because at that time, African-Americans could vote in Memphis for complicated reasons, or I'll start policing your drugstore. And what the, and the guy refused to shut him down, he starts searching people going in and out of the drugstore. Well, anyway, that's a big part, that's a big story that I urge people to read about. J.B. Martin, I got an op-ed coming about it. But later, the labor leader, A. Philip Randolph, who is well-known now as the guy that was calling for a march on Washington and a scared FDR into ending or a, an order to end discrimination in the military. He didn't really do that, but anyway, he scared him to do that. Uh, Randolph is a big defender of free speech. In fact, some of the heroes in my book, from a free speech standpoint, are on the left. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm careful to do that. I say there's a left-right coalition for free speech that we can learn from during this period. But Randolph comes to Memphis, and he just is on a tear, attacking Crump for what he did to Martin, attacking Crump's free speech, limits on free speech. And what Crump does is his city machine is they go to the public housing people. And the public housing people... Um, they're going to, Randolph was going to meet at one of those facilities. They actually passed the word. No, he isn't. Right. So they would limit free speech in, in these public housing facilities, for example. So there's another interesting connection that were created by the new deal about how free speech, the welfare state during the war is deployed for all sorts of different reasons to limit speech. And we see this. So I think that there, those are those are two examples that I I could give, um, but there's certainly there's certainly others you can give. I mean, W uh, government money was very important in the 1936 election. In fact, there was a city machine guy named Haig, and his um, um, oh I guess it was Democratic headquarters in Jersey City. Uh, the guy there got lazy one day. And because, uh, uh, well, no, he, he, he was also with the WPA 
And so this guy that was head of the Democratic headquarters would get lazy sometimes and answer the phone when he was at WPA headquarters and say Democratic Party headquarters. So they were intertwined. In other words, the WPA, the relief system, was used strategically in 1936, and there's a lot written about it, not by classical liberals or anything, um, mm. used strategically to, um, to basically buy votes, to shift votes in that election and in other elections. Um, wow. So I don't know if you want to call that a free speech issue or not, but it's all interconnected, I guess you could say. And someone who's written about this a bit is Burton Folsom, who I don't know if you've ever interviewed, but he no. did a book called New Deal. Oh, you should. I think you'd like him. He did a book called New Deal or Raw Deal. And he has a lot in uh, the tax code changes, but, uh, but a lot about uh, the strategic use of governmental money in that mm. election. Very interesting. And so also for this, for the free speech thing, if we can go to some other examples as well, there was also newspapers, right? If you were a newspaper that was criticizing the New Deal or criticizing the administration, uh, they were trying to interfere with that as well, right? Yeah, this is a, a guy named Sherman Mitten. And if you Google him, the one thing you'll get is he there's a Mitten Bridge in Indiana. <laughs> you can get much about him. But Mitten was a protege to Hugo Black. And when uh, he was a tight ally. And if anything, Minton was even more zealous in pushing the New Deal than Black. About hmm. the same, maybe. But they were both quite zealous. And so when Black goes to the Supreme Court, Black has headed this committee to investigate lobbies. And Minton takes over, even though he's a freshman senator, to head this pretty powerful committee, which initially is kind of dormant. But then they ramp it up again because FDR is in trouble. FDR had won big in 1936, one of the biggest landslides ever. And it looked like he could do anything. And he probably wanted to do just about anything. But then he tried to pack the Supreme Court, and despite massive, mm. massive Democratic majorities. A left-right, with emphasis on the left to a great extent, coalition in Congress and in the public stopped that, which is really quite amazing when you think about how lopsided his majority was. Well, anyway, FDR is mad about this. He was feeling good. It was like 1933. But now by 38, he's really mad, 37, 38. So Mitten gets on board and does another investigation of anti-New Dealers. This blows up in his face. It's, 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 it's seen as invasive and inquisitorial. Um, but what he does as things seem to be blowing up as he goes and he proposes a bill in the Senate to make it a felony to publish any newspaper article known to be untrue, right? <laughs> and make it a felony, one-year yeah. prison sentence. This sounds like a bill that would fly now. Yeah. Uh, misinformation. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, I mean, all this stuff about misinformation, they even maybe even use the term. Uh, false news, fake news. It's all, all been done before. And FDR was very concerned about that as well. So it's very similar. So right. Mitten proposes this bill. And I think, I, I can't prove it, but I think the evidence is pretty strong that FDR, he wouldn't do anything without FDR's okay, that he had talked to people in the administration about it. They had encouraged him. He wasn't the kind of guy to go off as a loose cannon. Let's put it that way. 
He was right. a loyal guy. So anyway, he proposes this bill, and lo and behold, right out of the box, there is, and this is a very positive part of the story, for me at least, massive opposition. And people say, you can't do that. And a lot of it comes to New Dealers. See, I say the New Deal versus the Bill of Rights, but there is an element of the New Deal, coalition, that is civil libertarian. Hmm. And they don't like this stuff. And they're really mad about this. But FDR has been very smart because he has not, it's Mitten. So Mitten's kind of the fall guy. And FDR has asked about it at a news conference right after this reaction, negative reaction is set in. It's almost universal, by the way. Mitten is just almost universally repudiated by left and right. And Roosevelt has asked about this. He says, uh, do you support this? What do you think of it? He says, well, you know, he doesn't answer the question. But he's a joke. FDR is good, good at jokes. And he says, well, you know, if we had that as law, we'd have to... You know, people publish lies. We'd have to, you know, increase the size of, also massively increase the size of the Department of uh, Corrections. We'd have to have far more prisons to hold all the people. You know, he's, get, he's just, you know, doing mm-hmm. this jocular, right? Mm-hmm. And then and he, he, he switches on, you know, goes to another questionnaire. But he says, before that, he says, you boys brought it on your, to yourselves, you know. And then he goes to another question. So wow. very, very interesting comments, but he is known at that point, you know, he knows that this isn't going to fly. Wow. There are editorial cartoons of Franklin discovers electricity, one of them which I wish I could have used in my book, but it shows, I have a lot of other good cartoons though. It shows, uh, you know, him flying a kite from the White House and it getting hit by lightning. And that's, that's, and it's specifically gag bill, response to gag bill, which people, critics call it a gag bill. And so Minton eventually has to withdraw this thing. But so, it, is, it is universally criticized, which is very positive, I think, indicator for the period. And I wish we would have that now. But right. a lot of people on the left were willing to say, no, it's ridiculous. No, they can do whatever they want. They can publish whatever they want. We don't have to read what they, they're making these very libertarian arguments, yeah. free speech arguments. So, you know, that's, that gave me a new appreciation for that side of civil libertarianism during the, during the thirties and forties, including in the, in uh, people that pushed back like Biddle. Biddle was a new dealer, but he was against Japanese internment, for example. There were others like him. There well, were lower-level people in the Justice Department that were New Dealers. There were a lot of people that didn't like these things. They pushed back. And why? I think the World War I experience. They've been taught by law professors who said, look at what happened in World War I. Uh, They've been, I see. That been hammered. And prohibition. Look at all the violations of civil liberties that happened then. And those right. examples were very powerful. And so you got a lot of lawyers out there who don't go along with this stuff. Well, that's interesting because that's what I was actually wondering, David. So you kind of answered the question that was in my mind, which was we can obviously see that, you know, now we live through some parallels as to what we saw back then during the New Deal era. But people are not really pushing back across 
you know, political boundaries. There seems to be one side that is pushing back, but, you know, just because they don't necessarily like the morality of, of the woke culture, let's say, I think that um, it's very tribal. And if one side likes it, the other side doesn't like it. And so all of these issues get kind of divided up uh, among across uh, political lines, and that includes free speech. But back then, you had people from the left, from the right, from the center, all coming together, uh, or at least coming up on their own and saying, I don't like this, I don't like what's going on. And because they had it fresh in their minds. So now what's what's happening, I guess, if we talk a little bit about today is that, do you think that people just don't remember, uh, don't have it close enough in their memory to think of the dangers that happen when we have things like the Ministry of Truth <laughs> that they're trying to, to uh, reinvigorate society with now, with all of this misinformation and all of this censorship and all of this suppression? I think that I, I think I blame... Uh, pro-civil liberty conservatives, a lot of libertarians in a way, for not for not recognizing that some of the danger comes from the right and publicizing that. You know, an interesting example that I see is a lot of the J6 people were convicted of a ridiculous law um, called the Seditious Suits Conspiracy Law, which basically means what do you want it to mean, Right. You're guilty of seditious conspiracy. There's no real standard. There was very little pushback on the left, and frankly, not that much. Well, there was some on the right, but it was sort of linked in with other stuff. Mm -hmm. And my view is, you know, in J6, if people are guilty of vandalism or assault, uh, there are laws in the books. They should be prosecuted to the full extent of those laws, right? But seditious conspiracy, when I saw that, that raised a red flag because... A lot of my book looks at sedition laws and how they were misused hmm. against both the left and the right. So here the right is being attacked by sedition laws. And we can all get frustrated that civil libertarians, you know, I don't want to name names, but there's one prominent one I've tried to get interested in this. I, I said, you know, that they're not, civil libertarians are not doing anything about this. this don't you know the history of this? Eugene Debs went to jail during World War One. I'm kind of like, what are you people doing? Well, there are also prosecutions going on now that people on the right aren't paying enough attention to. And these are domestic terrorism prosecutions. And there's a big one going on now in Atlanta where a whole bunch of environmentalist protesters got kind of rowdy, did some vandalism, but a lot of them were just sort of caught up. It's like J6 in a lot of ways. And they were, they're, they're, the city there is, as, as it is prosecuting Donald Trump, I'd say even more prosecutions are going on for domestic terrorism. <laughs> there, there, and you could just Google this. People need to, and it's a, it's going on, and more people are being charged with domestic terrorism on the left now, these state laws than on the right apparently, or at least it's comparable. Um, and a lot of these laws came in because of the right. You know, uh, Dylan Root in New South Carolina. That was a big motivator of some of this, some of these laws. They're very similar to seditious. Conspiracy laws. They're vague. They're open-ended, hmm. right? You don't have to be really guilty of anything. Speech, there's speech crimes to some extent. You're at the wrong place in the wrong time. Let's pile it on. And I, I wrote an op-ed, and it got very little attention. But I tried to say, look, seditious conspiracy and domestic terrorism laws are the same kind of thing. Left and right need to realize this and come together. So I, I think 
if any people are on the right or libertarians out there, they need to really start doing some research on these domestic terrorism laws and say, wait a minute, because that's the way you can get credibility for a, a, a movement that's somewhat consistent for free speech, because these are tremendously dangerous. And they've got a, a record in American history against use against the left, uh, seditious sedition laws used against civil rights organizers, um, you know, used against all sorts of people. Domestic terrorism laws are really in the same tradition. Yeah, well, well, this is what I kind of mean, David, when I talk about the right, you know, being more pro-speech now, but perhaps just because uh, it's a tribal thing, right? Um, exactly. It's it's not necessarily about civil liberties anymore. It's about my side, my team. And that could flip over. So that's a kind of very dangerous place. And I think that when we see that, you know, societies become more tribal, uh, there are not really good outcomes to that. And uh, 90 years ago, we have the New Deal, and then we move into an era of the Second World War. And I don't know, do you think that there are any kind of parallels today, this kind of uh, ascending tribalism and people who are kind of getting riled up about things on either side? Like, do you think that, I mean, what I mean to say is, in a way, a broad question, why should we study history? I mean, should we be studying history to see what the effects of our actions are if we continue on certain paths or broader strokes? What do you think about everything today and how we can look at history from yesterday? Well, you want to study history to, for a lot of reasons. One, for the sake of sake of doing it. But I think if you, if you look at this period, you see striking, striking parallels. And they're not favorable to this era in a lot of ways. Um, who was the AOC or the Bernie Sanders of the 1930s? It was the head of the Socialist Party. It was Norman Thomas, who ran repeatedly for president. Hmm. Norman Thomas was a very respected figure by a lot of people, even though they wouldn't vote for him necessarily, although it was, you know, got some votes. And Thomas was a zealous civil libertarian. All right. And during World War II, you had sedition trials against right wingers. Thomas criticized those. In 19, when you had the Minton Committee, he came together with the Republican presidential candidate in 1936 to criticize um, Roosevelt's uh, attacks or willingness of Roosevelt allies and Roosevelt's unwillingness to do anything about it, attacking free speech. Um, so there, can you imagine AOC doing that? I can't. Uh, can you imagine even Bernie Sanders, who seems like a fairly weak figure? Maybe he had some good tendencies in civil liberties at one time, but I don't mm -hmm. see those apparent anymore. So one of my heroes during this time, I would say, um, you know, is, is Norman Thomas, a socialist who worked with the left, worked with the right. Um, and um, had a very interesting debate before he died in the 1960s with Barry Goldwater. And it was a very respectful debate. You could tell there was, you know, Goldwater respected him, and Thomas seemed to respect Goldwater. And But Thomas was a socialist. There's no doubt about that. Um, but he was willing to take on the administration. Um, and I see other examples like that during World War II. A magazine, I don't even know if they're around. Is the Progressive Magazine around anymore? 
I guess they I exist know. in some form. Hmm. But they are big left wing magazine. World War Two, they were they were great on civil liberties, and a lot of conservatives were really good on civil liberties too, um, uh, for the most part. Like the Chicago Tribune, big anti New Deal publication. So you had coalitions. Now, they didn't always do a great job. The ACLU did a very poor job, I think, during World War II. Elements in it were very pro-civil liberties, but it tended to be, it was too cozy with the New Deal. Maybe that's a precursor to what you see with someone like AOC now. Uh, there was a emerging coziness, so they weren't as vigorous as they could have been. But there were people in the ACLU like Thurgood Marshall, interestingly enough, who were very good on civil liberties. So it was split. But most people in the ACLU were kind of willing to defer to the government. But you had you had substantial numbers of people, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Who really stuck their necks out for individual liberty across the spectrum. I don't see that as much now. It's very and, you can find it on specifics, like I find some left wingers that are upset about these domestic terrorism prosecutions. But then I try to point out parallels, they don't seem to want to see that. Um, you had more people that saw the parallels, yeah. saw the difficulties. And, and Trump has created all sorts of problems because he's, I find, a very unsympathetic figure, right? And yeah. um, he's created issues, right, well, that aren't I think always that, very positive is yeah. want to make those arguments. I think that's actually maybe part of the answer to why we've kind of got so tribal now and – I think that there was something that happened when Trump was elected and then it just became this kind of like uh, he became a divisive person, but also the media fanned those flames and maybe they kind of created that division as well. Like there was just like something changed, I think, when Trump got elected and, and America really did become very, very tribal and has kind of remained tribal since that point. And then um, different things like the the uh, restrictions and the uh, responses to COVID divided people yeah. along those same lines, and that uh, remained a political thing as well. And now it's the free speech issue, exactly. and like every single issue moving forward seems to be kind of divided down this very very rigid line. I think you you nailed it, and um, and it, it it's so rigid that you just don't get people who can rise above it. And I'm not saying I'm some perfect person, but a lot of imperfect people were able to kind of rise above these tribal divisions at one time, you know, in the 30s. Yeah. You know, you'd have someone like H.L. Mencken, right, who's kind of a libertarian, was a libertarian. But he had a lot of people on the left that loved him, right, that mm. really liked his civil libertarianism. And, you know, people would correspond with each other. They would associate with each other. They would form coalitions, um, and they were they were kind of willing to look past certain divisions. I don't see that now as yeah. much. Yeah. Right. And I've studied some history here, and you know, I'm trying to be objective, but I just don't think the tribalism was as much of a problem in the 1930s as it is now. Okay, so David, we've talked about, you know, the dark underbelly of the New Deal. There's a lot more that is in your book. Uh, so I suggest people go out there and read that. Um, but are there any other kind of last parallels that you want to draw 
uh, as to what you see happening today compared to the kind of New Deal era? Um, well, I mean, I think in a way, uh, the, this whole is, is this whole, the, well, there's a couple, there's the whole issue of deplatforming and, uh, uh, indirect pressure, <laughs> government pressure to shut down speech. And, um, I sort of go a little backward on this and look at the 1920s and radio. And interestingly enough, during that period, radio was in some ways more free than the print press. Mm. And it was more of a kind of de facto, well, a de facto kind of property rights system. And so you had wide diversity of different radio stations. Uh, gradually, you start tightening up and you have fewer and fewer voices. And by the late 1930s, every major network radio commentator, three big networks, well, two at that time, were uh, New Deal, pro-New Deal people, or at least were not against the New Deal. And there were, there were cases of Roosevelt working behind the scenes, using pressure. For example, uh, there was a guy named uh, Bo Carter, who had a very, kind of the Tucker Carlson of his time in a way, very popular show on one of the big networks, and uh, there was efforts made by Roosevelt and intermediaries to go to sponsors to try to get this guy to tamp it down and then ultimately to get him out of there. Uh, so you see deplatforming occurring in, 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 I mean, I think I see some, I see some very close parallels to that. Yeah. Um, I see, interestingly enough, how People are manipulated by things that supposedly would be neutral, like building codes, um, um, those kinds of things, uh, tax, local taxes, both at the national and federal level. So the weaponization, not just of the IRS, but at the local level, against many cases against African-Americans of things like fire regulations and building codes, there was a very vocal black Republican minister in Memphis who had to close his, had to leave essentially because his church was hit with all these fire regulations that came to thousands of dollars for no good reason. And hmm. eventually they, they, you know, they had to give up. So that kind of thing is occurring a lot. And I don't think libertarians and conservatives are paying enough attention to it. So that's an interesting you could find parallels to that today, I think, too. Right. And also the mass surveillance, right? I mean, we found out through the Twitter files that Twitter was actually able to read people's private messages. And since uh, the, the three-letter agencies had access to Twitter and what was going on there and they were colluding together, you can look at that almost in the same way as the Black Inquisition when people's Very private close. conversations, yes. right, are up for grab. Yeah, it's really interesting. So are you, are, okay, David, our last question then, are you the type of historian who believes in cycles? Do you think that there are, are there is a cyclical nature to history or do you think that these things are all just kind of random? Do you think history repeats and rhymes? What's your view on that? Um, are there cycles? You know, I, I don't know how to really answer that question. I do, you do tend to see that occurring, right? You get swings between left and right over time. Um, you have a lot of econ economists will talk about cycles. 
of recessions and depressions. But I've, I'm, I've sort of stayed within my lane and I haven't really studied that. I certainly see, I see that occur in a kind of rough sense, but there's, there's not some scientific certainty that I have about things like that. Yeah. And I yeah. see, I see parallels, but I see differences and I say, and I see some very close parallels, but the differences, which I've also, I've noted here are also quite significant between the two periods and they're discouraging significance, I think, for those that that value the future of the country or value people getting along on any scale. Let's say you have secession or whatever, people getting along together and finding common ground for liberty. Um, it's very discouraging. Yeah, yeah, no, I can see that as well, for sure. Um, all right, well, David... Thank you so much for your time. I feel like we could talk for hours because there's so much to cover here. I definitely recommend that people go out and read your book um, because, like I said, it's very juicy. There's a lot of interesting details. There's lots of stories in here that I think that would inform people about that era and as well as, as we discuss differences and parallels with the New Deal era. So again, David Beto, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Kate. I appreciate it. You're welcome.